Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 22nd of January. This Sunday's theme is an account of the occasion that Jesus interrupted four fishermen who were going about their business and he called them to follow him as his disciples. He selected them, telling them that they were the ones he wanted. This, not entirely coincidentally, is the title of the song we've just heard. Some notices. I will be away this Sunday morning and this Sunday's service will be led by Megan Thompson. This afternoon at 4pm there will be a service to mark the week of prayer for Christian unity. This will be at Homewood Road United Reformed Church where the preacher will be the very Reverend Joe Kelly Moore, Dean of St Albans. The Dagnall Street Worship Group is not a specific set of people but the name we've given to people who've taken on responsibility for a specific service. The next service for which the Dagnall Street Worship Group will be responsible is Sunday the 12th of February. There will be a meeting on Thursday next week, that's Thursday the 26th of January, at 7.30 in the cafe for anyone who is interested and would like to find out what is involved. And all are welcome. And now our call to worship. The Lord is my light and my salvation, so why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger, so why should I tremble? The one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me there when troubles come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock. Then I will hold my head high above my enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. Hear me as I pray, O Lord. Be merciful and answer me. My heart has heard you say, Come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I am coming. Do not turn your back on me. Do not reject your servant in anger. You have always been my helper. Don't leave me now. Don't abandon me, O God of my salvation.
Lord of light and salvation, the stronghold of our lives, we come to worship you today. You shone in the darkness and have given us hope. We walk towards your light today, knowing that your light can never be extinguished. Lord, we come today to dwell in your house. Forgiving God, we are sorry when we say one thing and do another. We are sorry when we say yes and then say no. We are sorry when you call us and we choose not to follow. Lord, you have called us to follow you. We are sorry when we choose to ignore you. We are sorry when we choose to do what we want. We are sorry and respond to your call today. As you called the fishermen to leave their nets and follow you, help us to follow you too, to go in a new direction with you. Transform us and make us whole and help us to enjoy the journey with you. Loving and merciful God, who's called us to repentance, we are truly forgiven by you. We are washed clean by your blood and can respond to your call to follow you, knowing we are healed and restored. Lord, send us out as renewed people. Help us to turn away from what is wrong and turn to what is right. Help us to turn towards our neighbours and to all who are lost. Help us to turn away from distractions and towards more adventuring with you. Help us now and always. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew, throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people and they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father, Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. They immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Jesus travelled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. Last week we looked at the way in which God's Spirit led John the Baptist to recognise Jesus as the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. John then pointed his own disciples towards Jesus and told them, Off you go, you must follow him now, not me. And so Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip and Nathaniel all became disciples of Jesus. We found this account of how these men became disciples in the book of the Gospel according to John. If we look in the other three Gospel books of the Bible, the story is slightly different. Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus called the two sets of brothers, Andrew and Simon and James and John, 
to be his disciples while they were mending and cleaning their nets alongside the Sea of Galilee. Luke's version is slightly different. Luke tells us that Jesus had already met Simon when he stayed at his house in Capernaum and healed his mother-in-law of a fever. At this stage in Luke's story, we have not been told that these fishermen had become disciples of Jesus. The way that Luke describes this call to discipleship begins in the same way as Matthew and Mark tell their story. Jesus finds the fishermen on the seashore tending to their nets. But the way that Luke tells the story, something else happened. Jesus got into Simon and Andrew's boat and asked Simon to take it out away from the shore. When Simon had done this, Jesus began to address a crowd that had gathered around him, and he told them about the kingdom of God. After he'd finished speaking, Jesus asked Simon to take the boat out into the middle of the sea and to let the nets down. Simon complained that this was a waste of everyone's time because they'd had a rotten night fishing because the fish weren't biting. But still, he did it. The result was that they caught more fish than they could manage and the nets were ripping as they pulled them in. Simon Peter's response was one of fear because he knew that he was in the presence of a power that was beyond his understanding. But Jesus told him not to be afraid and that from now on he and the others would fish for people. And with that they left their boats and followed Jesus as his disciples. So what do we make of these four stories? The way that Matthew and Mark explain how Simon, Andrew, James and John became disciples is straightforward. Jesus saw them cleaning and mending their nets and asked them to leave all that behind and follow him. Luke tells us that this call to follow came after Jesus had produced this miraculous catch of fish. John doesn't even mention fishing, but he tells us that these men were all connected with John the Baptist. John the Baptist could only take his followers so far. His purpose had been to point people towards the Lamb of God. Once he knew that Jesus was the one whom God had sent, his job was over, and he had simply to hand over his disciples so that they became followers of Jesus. While these stories are all different, once again we can see how they might fit together. John's interest in writing his book was in the way in which John the Baptist was God's prophet, but not God's Messiah. And in this book, we learn how John the Baptist led his disciples to find the Messiah. Matthew, Mark and Luke all share an interest in these men as plying their trade on the Sea of Galilee as fishermen. While Luke has the extra episode of the great catch of fish, all three tell of Jesus calling these four men to leave their boats and their livelihoods to follow him as a disciple. While Matthew, Mark and Luke's interests might be different from the Gospel according to John's, we can see how they both respond to the same question. How did these men become disciples of Jesus? From one, the answer is that John the Baptist pointed them towards Jesus, and from the others, it is that Jesus called them to follow him. How we harmonise these different stories is an issue that I've tried to answer today, and it's a question that I've thought about in the past. But there is another question that arose from reading this passage that I hadn't considered before, and I'd like us to think about it now. You will remember from our reading that Jesus saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So my question is, what happened to Zebedee? 
Zebedee was the father who was left alongside the nets and the boats when James and John went on to follow Jesus alongside Andrew and Simon. Zebedee, the only minor character in the story that we read, is consigned to the same status as a boat and a bunch of fishing nets. As like them, he's left at the seashore while the others go off with Jesus. Part of the reason for mentioning these other stories about the call of the four fishermen to follow Jesus is to try to get a handle on what made them different from Zebedee. Perhaps Zebedee was not a follower of John the Baptist. Maybe he wasn't there when his sons helped Simon, Peter and Andrew pull in that whopping great catch. Or maybe he just wasn't that into Jesus. Our reading tells us that Zebedee was actually right there with his sons. We read in our passage that James and John were in the boat with their father, mending their nets, when Jesus called them to follow. The passage makes it fairly clear that it was just Zebedee's sons who'd been called. James and John were in the boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. In Mark's version of this same story, we got a little extra piece of information which is that James and John left not just their father, but the hired hands as well. So why did Jesus call just these four people and not those who were with them? What was it about Zebedee that meant that he was not to be included? Well, this is quite a hard story when looked at with this question in mind. We could envisage a situation in which James and John look round to see their father following them down the steps of the boat and then whispering to him, no, Dad, he didn't mean you. He only meant James and me. Perhaps it was a generational thing. The received wisdom is that Jesus was about 30 when he began his ministry. Let's assume that James and John were at least in their early 20s, which would make Zebedee say mid to late 40s. Jesus was like the cool older brother, and these young men wouldn't have wanted their dad around. With just the twelve of them and Jesus, it was an exciting new adventure, living off the land, going into foreign parts, meeting new people. With their dad alongside them, it would be more like a family camping trip with Zebedee telling them how he used to light fires when he was in the scouts. Maybe it wasn't Zebedee's relationship with his sons that meant he wasn't included. Maybe he just wasn't the right kind of person. Well, that's obviously ridiculous. Jesus ate with all sorts of people, including tax collectors, sinners and prostitutes. Tax collectors and prostitutes were never invited out because decent people didn't have anything to do with them. The thing is, while this pattern of indiscriminate hospitality is as old as the gospel, this theory was called the homogeneous unit principle, or HUP. Sometimes congregations have been intentionally created with the HUP in mind, such as church plants that have been aimed at creative types or young upwardly mobile professionals or yuppies as we used to call them. The HUP is also alive and well in the burgeoning ethnic and foreign language congregations, principally in London, but in many other parts of the country too. It's understandable that people want to meet with like-minded and, dare one say it, like-coloured people people uh, with those who they have the same linguistic and cultural background. This will happen naturally by self-selection, because people will tend to go where they think they will best fit in. When we think of evangelistic strategies and churches that experience growth in numbers, our minds might tend to drift towards those meals at which like-minded people gather around pasta and pizza 
and talk about NCT classes, holidays in the Dordogne, and the God-shaped empty space within them. The people with whom Jesus ate were more likely to have in mind the food-shaped empty space within them, and these people are still around today. While the traditional denominations still tend to be doing okay among the white middle classes, they're failing to make many inroads in the inner cities. This has something to do with how churches are resourced. In a union of churches, such as our Baptist denomination, there is an attempt to share resources, but each church is ultimately responsible for what it does with its money and the talent that it has. This has the effect of concentrating resources in the areas where people are most comfortable. The Baptist Union doesn't allocate ministers to churches, but acts as a clearinghouse for ministers looking for churches and churches looking for ministers. And this means that ministers are called to churches rather than sent to where perhaps they're most needed. The outcome of this situation is that God calls a disproportionate number of ministers to live in south-east England and especially the suburbs, whereas few are called to the north or to the more remote parts of the West Country. Now I realise that I could be called out for hypocrisy in that I speak as someone who's ministered in two of England's most attractive cities, Oxford and St Albans, although I hope that I'm also honest enough to acknowledge that where I've ministered has not been completely divorced from personal preference. But it still does concern me that while our churches might have the desire to reach out to those on the margins, we're either not equipped or have no idea what it is we should be doing. Archbishop Oscar Romero, who was martyred in El Salvador more than 40 years ago, once said that we are called to be Easter Christians in a Good Friday world. I fear that what has happened is that we have actually become Waitrose Christians in a Poundland world. And I feel that we're in danger of turning our backs on those to whom Jesus would focus his own time and attention. But back to Zebedee and a confession that I may have got it wrong. I began by suggesting that the picture that Matthew gives us of the calling of the disciples could be considered simply a snapshot taken at one point in a longer process or, alternatively, a brief summary of the important points. Jesus came calling, he asked them to follow him, and they left their jobs and their families and did just that. It seems that these fishermen were also disciples of John the Baptist, and so had been used to the idea of looking out for the coming of God's Messiah, and perhaps they'd also seen Jesus demonstrating who he was, before deciding that he was the one whom he and John the Baptist said he was. Perhaps Zebedee had no idea who this strange man was. When we're looking at the way in which John the Baptist pointing, pointed his disciples towards Jesus, we can see that there is a common theme that one person was encouraging another to come and see. In other words, to experience Jesus for themselves. Perhaps no one had thought to tell Zebedee about Jesus. Perhaps no one had thought to ask him to come and see for himself. But that may not be the reason why Zebedee didn't follow his sons. It may be that he thought that this wasn't for him. His sons and the other fishermen and the rest of the twelve were younger men than him. Perhaps the life of a disciple didn't seem fitting for a man whose days were more than half spent. Or maybe there was something else. I wonder if Zebedee felt that he wasn't good enough, that he wasn't deserving of knowing God, or that God wouldn't want to know him. This is what haunted Zacchaeus. He climbed a tree to see Jesus, but didn't think for a minute that Jesus would notice him. 
He came into that category of tax collectors and sinners, and so was persona non grata at most Jewish dinner tables. But Jesus saw him and told him that he would come to visit Zacchaeus and break bread with him. Zacchaeus was a man who lived on the edge of society, but Jesus reached out to him and brought him into God's kingdom. We know nothing about Zebedee, and all I've said about him is speculation, but if Zebedee thought that Jesus hadn't come for him, he was wrong. But Jesus wasn't about to force anyone to follow him. Of course, Zebedee may have responded the next time Jesus called. We do know that despite their initial enthusiasm, Peter, James and John were far from perfect followers. When the chips were down, Peter denied Christ. James and John missed the point of Jesus' teaching, longing for the security of their own advancement. Christ calls countless times during our lives. Sometimes we are up to the task, other times we're not. However we have responded in the past, the adventure is never complete. The way that we've heard this story today, it was as if there was no prior knowledge of Jesus, no thinking, no weighing up the cost of discipleship. The four fishermen simply left their boat and everything that goes with it behind them. In the blink of an eye, they were by Jesus' side, wide-eyed and dripping wet from the Sea of Galilee. This scene may have been in his mind when G.K. Chesterton wrote, An adventure is, by its nature, a thing that comes to us. It's a thing that chooses us, not a thing that we choose. Perhaps this is why everything happens so fast in this passage. No one can wait for the adventure to begin. In his Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Empire Falls, Richard Russo speculates that Jesus' disciples must have experienced some ambivalence after his death. They never wanted him crucified, of course, but what a relief it must have been when the stone was rolled across the entrance of the tomb, sealing everything shut so they could get back to being fishermen, which they knew how to do, rather than fishers of men, which they didn't. You see, after this, the resurrection was yet another disruption, yet another invitation to follow. Zebedee would have had another opportunity when Christ would call, just as happened with Simon, Andrew and his sons, James and John. Zebedee may have been left behind that day, but that doesn't mean he was left out. When Christ calls, he beckons us beyond the point of familiarity, asking us to risk doing something we don't know how to do, to become someone we're not yet sure we know how to be. But let's not get too self-centred about all this. It's not just that we're taking a risk on Christ. The extraordinary thing about the call of Jesus is that every time he calls, it is he who is taking a risk on us. Where you go, I'll go Where you stay, I'll stay When you move, I'll move I will follow Go!
Let us pray. Almighty God, as you called your first disciples, so you call us to follow you. You call us not only to repentance and lifestyle changes, but you also call us to love others as we love ourselves. You call us to care and share, and so we pray for all those who need us and who need your touch this day. For the ongoing war in Ukraine, for those living in fear whose whole lives have been turned around, upended and damaged for those left rootless and homeless, and those who grieve the death of family and friends, for those who are at the front line of fighting and preservation of what is left, for those caring for the injured and the frail, especially those who are in the firing line. We pray for those Russian citizens who live with uncertainty and who don't see the real happenings with their neighbours, for those families whose men have been forced to fight with little or no training or understanding of what is going on, for those who have had no contact with their men since they were forced into war. For people in California whose lives have been turned around by storm after storm after storm, those who are dealing with flood, landslides, sinkholes, loss of nature and homes and infrastructure, loss of employment and loss of life and livelihood. For all those caught up in the Nepal air disaster, we remember those who have been killed and we pray for those who are bereaved, injured, left grieving. 
We pray for our missionary partners, the Vocal family working for BMS World Mission. And we pray for any who have been uh, connected to that family who have been involved in this disaster. We pray for rescuers and cleaner-uppers and investigators dealing with the aftermath of the crash, those who are seeking answers to what happened and decide if change needs to be made to prevent future accidents. We pray for those around the world who live with injustice, unfairness and discrimination. We pray for those who simply live with their situation from day to day and those who decided to stand up for what they see to be wrong in their societies, no matter what brutal regimes may do to them. We pray for those who try to get others to turn around and live more just and caring lives. We pray for those in our own country who are striving to hold on to their standards of living but struggle from day to day with increasing inflation, where what money they have buys less and less. We pray for those who have daily to choose between heating and eating, for those whose physical and mental health is impacted severely by the impact of such things. For those who feel they have no choice but to withdraw their labour and stand on picket lines seeking governments to turn around and support them more through increased pay deals and improved working conditions. We pray for those on all sides involved in such difficult dilemmas. While we deal with floods, winds and snow and ice, countries in at the Horn of Africa, places like Somalia, have had a second year with a drought and virtually no harvest, climate change in action. May the world see that we need an about turn to prevent further climate catastrophe. For those we know and love, we pray for our family, friends and neighbours who are in need this day. In the quietness of our heart, in this moment we recall their names to mind. May our love and your touch, O God, be there for them this day. Almighty God, in following you, our hearts are pained as we see the struggles, pains and dilemmas of the world and its people. Touch our lives, touch our hearts, deepen our love and hear our prayers in the name of Jesus, who called us to follow you. Amen.
Our last song and prayer are both versions of a traditional Celtic blessing. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. The rain fall soft upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. <laughs>